Amen. All right. Our uh, young people are dismissed to head downstairs. Unless you want to stay, it's going to be super fun in here. Why are you laughing that? That's, that's forced laughter. <laughs> All right. Um, fill in the bank, blank question for you, okay? Shout out the answer if you know it. Jesus came to give us blank. Okay, I'm hearing life. What else? Everlasting life. That's it? That's the only answer you got? Okay, good. That was actually the one I wanted. Um, I was expecting to get a lot of different answers, but uh, that's a good that's a good answer. Um, he did this by um, his blank. He did this by his what? Blank. Shout it out, guys. Come on. Let's... Resurrection, death, life. Um, so, yeah. And, and again, okay, these are not, there's, there's probably not too many answers that are going to be wrong. I mean, there could be some wrong answers, but your answers are all correct. Um, now, the biggest thing, though, is that he did this by his death. And John chapter uh, 20 tells us very clearly that uh, he is uh, uh, showing us or revealing what his book is all about. Um, he says, John 20, verse 30 and 31, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Over the last four months, what we've been doing is walking through the life of Christ, and what we've been really exploring is um, the fact that everything Jesus did and said, his miracles, uh, his teaching, his life, his birth, um, every, every aspect of Jesus' life validates, confirms, uh, clarifies that he is the Messiah, okay? That the Old Testament... told us that God was bringing into the world one person that would save the world from its sin, okay? And it clearly told us that this person has to fit all these different requirements, they have to, to be born in a certain way, has to live in a certain way, has to be a certain person. According to all these different predictions, Jesus fulfilled all of that, and in the uh, entire, you know, scope of what we've been talking about the last four months is really clarifying that Jesus fulfills all of those aspects to a T without fail, okay? Now, uh, that means that he is the Messiah. And then the next verse, it says, uh, but these are written. So there are so many things that Jesus did and said that, um, you know, we could fill the world with books. And we have filled the world with books that have been written about him, uh, books that help, help us to understand how to follow him. And we could continue to write books until the end of time. It's not necessarily that John is saying that the book couldn't, con or the, the world couldn't contain the books. It's that you'll never, ex ex uh, uh, never come to the, to the extent that, that you're going to cover everything that, that you possibly could about Jesus in his life. Okay, you'll never exhaust Jesus's life, his ministry, his words, his teaching, and the application of it. But he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, first and foremost, that's the most important thing, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Or maybe I should say, and that by believing, you, say me, that you may have life in his name. And that word life is really the key factor in, in this whole gospel, okay? He's written a lot of things, explained a lot of things, revealed a lot of things about Jesus, but the whole point is that you and I might have life in his name. So Jesus is our life. And so throughout the gospel of John, it's, it's very interesting how John writes, uh, because what you have is the first 10 chapters, okay, um, covering three and a half years 
of Jesus's life and ministry. Ten chapters covering three and a half years. And in those ten chapters, you're, you're seeing and hearing and understanding that Jesus is the water of life. He's the bread of life. Um, he's the resurrection in the life. That's actually chapter 11. Um, he is the way, the truth, in the life. That's actually chapter 14. Um, but you have all these explanations of Jesus being life. In fact, in chapter 10, I'll explain this a little bit more as we go on, but he says that I came, specifically chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, that we might have life and have it abundantly, not just now, but forever. Okay, so the first 10 chapters are Jesus being the life, he is the life, and then in chapter 11, we have this interesting pivotal moment of, of Jesus in his life. Okay, he raises Lazarus from the dead. So he actually literally gives somebody life who has died. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that story in just a minute. But then what's interesting about John is that from chapters 12 through 21, we have two weeks of Jesus' life. Okay, three and a half years in the first 10 chapters, the resurrection of Lazarus, and then two weeks of his life. So half the book is spent on three and a half year ministry and half the book is spent on the final days. And what that clues us into, okay, very importantly, is that 11 is that fulcrum. It's that pivotal moment. It is the, in, in John's gospel, okay, and according to John's witness, it is the event that spins Jesus from his ministry into uh, the cross. It, it is the thing that, that transitions Jesus from what he's doing and teaching to the moment that he's going to die on the cross, okay? And so we need to understand that uh, pretty well so that we can understand what its application has for us, all right? So let's stand as we read God's word this morning. John 11, and we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 38, says, then Jesus, deeply moved, again, and we'll cover that, uh, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And uh, I like how the King James says it. The King James says, Lord, uh, by now he stinketh. Okay, so the point is he, is, he is in the process of decomposing. And that, we need to understand that. Um, Jesus, verse 40, said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, I, I kind of want to go back and read that prayer again because it's a little bit of a strange prayer if you actually read it. It says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. That's a little odd, except for the fact that what he is saying here is, I want you all to know, everybody standing here, that what I'm about to do is from God. Okay, says verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And Father, we thank you for your word today as we come uh, to uh, understand more of who you are and, and more of your will for us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, again, would fill us, each and every one, God, that you would give each and every person the spirit to hear, the power to hear and to respond, Lord, that uh, as your word is, is proclaimed and, and ultimately, Lord, I, my prayer is simply that that is what would happen, just that your word would be proclaimed without um, varnish without anything that would uh, prevent, anything that would hinder, any wall that would go up, but that your word would simply be spoken with clarity, with truth, and that it would do its work, and that your, your, your powerful <laughs> Holy Spirit 
would move in the hearts of each and every one, uh, hearing, listening, uh, seated here in the sanctuary or wherever they're at at home, uh, God, to give them the ability to respond to you. And that's our hope, Lord, because you give us life. You give us life. And we need the life that you have for us. And sometimes we don't know how desperate we are for it. But today, Lord, we're going to pray in faith that everyone who's hearing right now uh, understands they need you. And Lord, I pray that you would respond to that need uh, with your promise, with your power, with your grace, with your love, with everything that you have for us uh, to really change a life, to make it yours. For your glory, for our sake, Lord, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, some things have happened in chapter 11 that uh, we're going to have to go back through and try to understand, uh, but you have to actually go back a little bit farther into chapter 10, and what I said was, um, Jesus came to give us life, he does this by his death, um, and so in chapter 11 you have this, this moment where things change, and, and it's interesting because what's going to happen is that uh, the things in chapter 11 are going to um, cause Jesus' death. They're going to cause his death. They're going to have a direct impact on Jesus going to the cross. Um, and so him giving life, ironically, causes his death, which ironically gives us life. So that's the thing that's happening here. And what's going on in chapter 10 is that Jesus has told the people, the, the religious rulers especially, uh, that he has come to give life and give it abundantly. You say, that's good news, right? I'd love to hear that news. Thank you, Jesus. We're, we're very appreciative of that. Uh, do you think that was their reaction? Okay, so he gets into a, an argument with these people, and he ends up saying that he is one with the Father. And the result of that is they believe that he is uh, committing the the. Uh, capital crime of blasphemy. He's saying that he is one with God, meaning that he is God, which is correct, and that if that is not true, then he is blaspheming, and that, that deserves um, an arrest and a death sentence. Um, if it is true, then it deserves worship. Okay? Uh, they believe that it's not true, even though he's given all the evidence in the world, he's validated this over and over and over throughout his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, everything in his life is pointed to this fact. He is the Messiah. He is the, the Son of God, and they can trust that, but they choose not to, and they want him dead. So he leaves Jerusalem, the, the area of Judea. He goes to uh, another area to get away from them because it's not time yet. It's soon but it's not yet, and it's not this way. And so he leaves, and he goes away. And it says that he goes to the place um, uh, across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remains. So we don't have a ton of information about exactly where he goes, but wherever he goes, he's out of the region. He's out of that particular area of Judea, Jerusalem, etc., uh, which is uh, also where Bethany is. Bethany is about two miles uh, from Jerusalem, according to John. So it's very, very close. It's in that area. And so he leaves and he goes somewhere that's probably, we're going to assume, uh, we think about a day's journey away. Okay. And so that's kind of the, the setup here. Now in chapter 11, what happens is that a certain man starting really back in verse one uh, was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now you probably know who Mary and Martha are. If you know a little bit about um, you know, the scripture, if you've been in church for a little while, then you've heard the stories about Mary and Martha, uh, pretty famous sisters, right? They host Jesus and his disciples uh, at some point in his ministry, and Mary is the, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings. Martha is running around trying to prepare the, the lunch for everybody, and she's upset with Mary for not helping out. She accuses her uh, to Jesus of being lazy and, and ask Jesus to do something about it. Remember this? And Jesus says, oh, Martha, you know, Mary has better things in mind. And that's not going to be taken away from her. 
And so we have that account. And then it also says that this is the same Mary in verse 2 who anointed the Lord, Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. That story, interestingly enough, has not been told yet by John. He's just giving you a preview of it. It's actually going to happen in chapter 12, a whole chapter later, then this whole anointing of Jesus by Mary is going to happen. So a few things deserve a little bit of explanation. One is that um, John uh, understands that uh, Mary is um, going to become famous, okay? Because Jesus says uh, in, in reference to this event that that there was this controversy. She was anointing his feet with oil. She was wiping it with her hair. It was very expensive, worth like a year's wages, like this really, really precious ointment that she was using. And uh, Judas particularly said, uh, why wasn't this sold given, and the money given to the poor? And he didn't really care about that. He just wanted to pocket some of the money. And he says, Jesus says, this story is going to go down in history. Her name is going to go down in history for this event because she's preparing me for my death. And so we all know about Mary because Jesus predicted that that was going to happen. John, is he knows that she's going to become famous, so he mentions it. He's also a good storyteller. He's giving you a sneak preview of what he's about to tell you in another chapter. But there's a lot going on there, okay? John also knows that he's writing Scripture. This is the Word of God. As he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Word of God, he knows that this book is going to be read and studied over and over and over throughout history until Jesus returns. So we're not just reading this one time through and like, oh, how come he didn't tell that story later? I mean, earlier is because he knows this is the Word of God. People are going to know this, and it's very important. Okay, so here's the moral of that story, though. She is going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. The whole momentum of the, the book of John is focused on the fact that Jesus needs to die and he will die, and that is the purpose of his life, is to die for you and for me. So, in verse 4, it says, this illness does not lead to death, Lazarus, okay? And you're probably getting a lot more information than you need, okay? I understand that. But this is fun for me. So, in John, this is the only place where we know about Lazarus, okay? John tells us about Lazarus in chapter 11, chapter 12. That's it. We never hear about Lazarus from any other gospel writer. He doesn't appear in the book of Acts. We don't hear about him in Paul's writings. He, he, this is it. But he is the beloved, beloved by Jesus, brother of Mary and Martha, he's sick, and he's going to die. It says, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, important, not only is he going to be glorified through the raising of Lazarus from the dead, because he, he is God and he has the power over life and death, but he's going to be glorified through this event, because this event is going to be the catalyst that causes his own death. Both of those things are going to happen. They're true. And, and there's an issue here, too, that um, Jesus... I'm not going to go there yet. Okay. Okay, so he's having this um, discussion with his disciples about Lazarus now that uh, they, uh, a, a messenger has come to tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick and he stays two more days and uh, he tells his disciples that, that he needs to uh, wait or go and, and wake up uh, Lazarus. Lazarus is, uh, quote-unquote, asleep, and he's going to go wake him up, meaning that Lazarus is dead, and Jesus is going to go raise him from the dead. Uh, but they don't quite understand that. They are like, oh, well, if he's sleeping, he's going to get better because, you know, as you rest, you sleep, and you get better. And he says, no, um, he's dead. I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you can believe your eyes when you see what I do, basically. Um, and so the end of that whole discussion is that Thomas, in verse 16, <laughs> says uh, to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, which is either the most sarcastic remark in Scripture 
or a, an amazing testimony of faith that, that Thomas is willing to go die with Jesus. I don't know exactly where Thomas is in that. It's just stated like, well, let's just go and let's die with him. Because they know that Jesus is on the chopping block if he goes back into Judea, back into the area of Jerusalem. They are ready to kill him. But Jesus knows that this is his time. And so here's what happens is that he waits two more days. So, so I believe that probably... Um, almost as soon as the messenger left Mary and Martha's house in, in Bethany to go find Jesus, okay, almost immediately, Lazarus died. He takes about a day or so, potentially, to find Jesus. He tells Jesus. Two days later, Jesus finally decides, let's go back. It takes them another day to get back. So Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time they get back there. Why did Jesus wait that long, okay? And, and the reality is, Jesus already says, I, I'm, this is for God's glory, but the reality is also in chapter 10 of John, okay? And this is how I view everything that you see and hear from Jesus, and, and I think it's an important and a, and a good way to understand it. He says, everything that he says and does is exactly what his father has told him and shown him what to do and say. Here's what Jesus is, is ultimately doing. He's waiting for direction from his father. He may want to go and raise Lazarus right now. He may want to just speak the words and remove the pain and the suffering of Mary and Martha immediately from where he's at. He could do that. He's God. He could, he could raise Lazarus without having to go to the tomb. He could have prevented Lazarus from ever dying. He, he had the power to do any of those things but he is submissive and completely obedient to whatever his God, his father, tells him that he is supposed to do. Okay, do you, do you understand that there's a really important application there for all of us? Jesus, who is perfect, who does not have a sinful nature, who desires everything that is good and right, is still 100% humble and obedient and respectful and submissive to what his father wants, and he's always seeking his father's will. Therefore, the application for you and me is, no matter what I think I want in my life, it's always best that I go to the Lord with it, ask him what he wants, and wait for an answer if I can. Amen? Now, sometimes you don't get the luxury of waiting for an answer. You have to move into an action but make sure that that action is in line with what the Word of God clearly says and not just what you want to, to do and what you want or, or what you can validate in your life. But praying and seeking the Lord's will is ultimately the goal of every one of us. So um, next is that he finally does go and he, he comes to uh, Bethany and it says, um, now I'm going to read through this this part of the passage, because I think it's really important. Verses 17 through uh, 27. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Um, so that's important. He's already been in the tomb four days. So maybe my timeline's not quite right. It's not just that he's been dead four days. He's been in the tomb for four days. Now, the Jewish people didn't wait too long to put people in the tomb. Like, they didn't wait like we do, like a few days. Like, it was like the next day, you're in the tomb. Okay, um, but Jesus uh, comes to the tomb, uh, Bethany, comes to Bethany, it says in verse 18, and he was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Um, um, we don't know if Mary's kind of pouting a little bit at this point, or, or if she's waiting for a personal invitation. Um, when Jesus does ask for Mary, she runs to him later. Uh, but at this point, she's, she's still mourning. Um, and so uh, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So it's interesting because she's, she says, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. So there's a statement of faith that she believes that he has the power to, to heal Lazarus. Now, I'm wondering if there's a, 
a resistance in her mind of believing that he can actually raise him at this point. He's, he's been dead and in the tomb for four days. Does she think that that's the extent of his power? Like, well, you know what? His body's starting to decompose. He's probably beyond your power at this point. But she says, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So it's like she's kind of hoping that she can believe that he can do this. Now, here, here's the, the issue that I think is important for us. Um, we, we believe God can do anything, amen? He, he can do what we think is impossible. And we kind of have this blanket statement of faith, like God is, uh, is uh, almighty. He's powerful. He can do anything. He's, you know, he says, don't say that anything's impossible for him, and, and those kinds of things. But when it comes to our own past, I think sometimes we think that that's the extent of his power. He can forgive me for sins that I commit, except for that one thing. And maybe it's not that you don't think that God can forgive you. Maybe it's just you can't forgive yourself. But it's really important that you remember that if, if God forgives you, then, then you can forgive yourself. And there's nothing in your past that he is not willing to forgive. There's nothing that you've done, said, felt, seen, spoken, nothing that he's not willing to forgive. And you may need to come to him again with that. And you may need to come to him over and over and over with it. You know, sometimes we do. We just lay these things down and we just keep laying them down before the Lord and say, God, please forgive me. And his statement is, I have forgiven you, but you have not forgiven yourself. And you need to move past that. Somebody needs to hear that. But then he says, Martha says to uh, him, well, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Okay, well, that's great. <laughs> she, she, she says, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she has faith in, in the resurrection. That's wonderful. That's a good biblical thing for her to believe. But he says this, and this is really the, the heart of the matter. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So her statement is, if you are the Messiah, and I believe that you are, then I'm going to take you at your word, even though I don't understand what you just said. That's kind of what she's saying. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. I'm going to take you at your word. But what you just said, it kind of went over my head. Okay, and I think it has gone over most people's head that Jesus has just declared that anyone who believes in him shall never die. And we have 2,000 years of history that records that every single person who has trusted in Jesus has what? Died physically. So obviously he doesn't mean that you're not going to die physically. Even Lazarus, who he's about to raise from the dead, is going to, again, die physically. Death is not simply the, the body giving up. Death in Scripture is separation. And what Jesus says here is really something every Christian person um, can and needs to take hold of. Okay, which is that when your body does give up your spirit, and it will, that you will go consciously, immediately into the presence of God, and you will never be separated from him. And to the, to the greater extent than you've ever experienced him in the past, you not only have the abundant life of Christ now, but he promises that as soon as you step into eternity, you step into his presence and you're consciously with him, alive. And he's still promising that you get to have a perfect, reunited, resurrected body for all eternity that will be glorified, that will be glorious. But when you step into eternity, you step into a conscious presence of God.
without judgment, without fear, without condemnation, without rebuke. Total, complete, joyful acceptance into the presence of God. Now, if you believe that, say amen. Amen. If you believe that, then also you need to live that way. What are you afraid of? What in this life is so hard or, or painful or, or scary or damaging or fearful or anything else that I know where I'm going when I die. I can live confidently no matter what I face. It, we should be the most fearless people in the world. And I'm not trying to get too preachy here, but sometimes Christians are very fearful, fearful of being rejected, fearful of pain, fearful of loss, fearful of difficult circumstances, fearful of the world, fearful of satanic you know, attacks, fearful of world events, fearful of whatever. It's like, why, why are we cowering in fear when we, know, when we know the promises that God has given to us and that they are ours and that they are permanent? Okay, is that enough preaching at you? All right, so... He's promising life. He's going to give life. Next scene is Jesus and uh, Mary. Now, here's the other part of this whole coin. Even though Jesus is promising eternal life, and there's a wonderful hope in that, he also understands that there's a lot of pain that we go through in life. We're not, we're not saying that there's no pain in life, right? And so when he goes and he talks to Mary, he, it says in verse uh, 33, uh, three. He says he was deeply moved in the spirit, greatly troubled. Verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Okay, He feels the compassion of, of this loss. He feels it. He senses that even though this is necessary, it's necessary for Mary and Martha for their growth in their faith. It's necessary for the disciples to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. It's necessary for the world to have a witness that Jesus can do anything. It's necessary for Jesus because it's going to be the catalyst that sends him to the cross. All these things are necessary. It doesn't mean that they're easy or pleasant, okay? And there may be things in your life that are necessary that God is bringing you through that are hard and painful and hard work, and difficult, and unpleasant, but God is bringing you through them because it's necessary for your transformation and your growth. Amen? we got to hold on and not give up. He feels that pain. I, I don't know if that helps a lot of people. Sometimes I wonder when we say, well, God, God he's not callous to what you're going through, okay? He does care but he is willing to bring you through what you need. Okay, and then the resurrection of Lazarus, and, and this whole scene here is very interesting because here's what happens. They've put him in the, the tomb, and the Jewish process for um, death and burial is that uh, they don't bury people like we do. Like we put them in a coffin in the ground, and like that's, they're done, that's it. What they would do, they would put somebody... They'd wrap them up in some, some cloth, you know, like, like they would, um, but they would put them into a tomb. They would have a vent pipe coming out because what they are wanting is for the, the, the flesh to decompose completely over the course of about a year. And then after a year, they'd go back in, open up the tomb after the, everything had, you know, everything had become <laughs> liquefied and whatever, right, all that. They'd go gather the bones, and they'd put them in these little caskets, and they'd store them elsewhere. And that tomb would then be used by somebody else. They'd reuse the tombs over and over and over and over, okay? But they would take the bones. They were, they were very practical, okay? Israel's a small country, so they, you were saving space. But their goal was that this body would rot sooner than later. And so they made it possible for them when they were buried to, to continue to decompose as quickly as they could. Do you understand that? Okay. So when they 
roll this stone back. And she says, Lord, he stinketh. I mean, what she, she's saying is he's already begun to decompose and it is going to knock you on your face how bad this is going to stink. And here's what I think happened. This is just me being weird. But I think they rolled that stone away and they were knocked over by the odor. Like it's, it was a powerful stench. And Jesus calls him and it's healed, restored completely in that moment. I just kind of see this wave of odor and then followed by Lazarus just being completely restored. Because he says that, God, I'm, I'm going to pray this. I'm just going to tell you know, all you people, you need to see this. But I think that, there, that, that smell was in their nose at that moment. Because sometimes a smell is much more powerful than a, something you see or hear or anything else. Amen? Call you back. And they, were, they, they saw this thing happen. And then here's the deal. <laughs> so weird. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Well, duh. Like, how could you not? He just raised a corpse back to life. Okay? And did it saying, Father, you hear me. I know you hear me. I'm saying this for everybody else, so they will be witnesses. Lazarus, come out. How come it doesn't say all of them believed? Isn't, isn't that weird? I'm standing there, smelling this, seeing this, hearing Jesus say this, and I'm going to walk away, eh, I don't know. This doesn't make sense. In verse 46, it says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I'm going to go tattle on Jesus. That's what happens. Some of these people walk away from this experience and go tell the, the Pharisees and the religious rulers that Jesus just did this miracle. A bunch of people are believing in him, but not me. I don't know. I mean, I am just as astounded that people in our day don't believe in Jesus as those people. It's like, how can you not, when you have all the evidence of what the Scripture says and everything that, that the New Testament confirms of the Old Testament, and then you have all the witness of the eyewitness testimony of the disciples, and you have the church and the power of God and the, the reality of, I mean, all these things, you just say, eh, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a spiritual blindness that cannot be overcome by a mountain of evidence. It's, there is something in the heart of a human being that has to say yes to God. And so it says here in verse 50, it says it's better, this is a high priest, okay, their conclusion to this whole event of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Call a meeting. Let's talk about this. He just did something that is astounding in front of all these people. It's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Let's kill Jesus. That's their conclusion. Let's take a vote. How many of you want to see Jesus dead? And I don't know if it's unanimous or not. But they had enough votes to then pursue what they did pursue. It's strange. Not only that, look over in chapter 12, verse 10. Chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They're like, you know what? It's not enough that we got to kill Jesus. Let's kill Lazarus too so there's no evidence of this miracle that he just did. In, in all of that, Again, I'm, I'm just saying this. It's ironic, Jesus doing the most miraculous, significant miracle of giving life would cause his death. And his death gives us life. 
But that's what Jesus knew. He knew this was necessary. He had to go to the cross to pay for sin once and for all. He had lived the perfect life. He had fulfilled everything of the Old Testament that he was called to fulfill. And the final thing that he had to do, he had to pay the price as the perfect sacrifice on the cross, become sin on the cross, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. That's the point of his life. He, he wasn't upset about this. I think he might have been a little bit upset that people would be so hard-hearted that they couldn't, just would not believe. But some of these people are going to become believers later. As the book of Acts unfolds, you see that many priests become Christians, that uh, some of these very people that were, that were involved in his death have, uh, after his resurrection, turned into faithful Christians. And our hope is the same thing, that somehow through the witness of God's word, that people who are far from God would come close to God. They would just say, yes, I, I'm, I believe, and I have life in his name. And so we celebrate his death until he returns. This is what 1 Corinthians tells us. I'm going to invite you just, if you don't already have a communion cup, to find one. If you need gluten-free, they're on the tables. The gluten-free ones are. First Corinthians 11, verse 26, says, As often as you eat, this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim, celebrate. Okay, that's what that's really talking about. That you are, it's such a strange way to say that, that you're celebrating his death. Now, I have to explain this because I think it is of utmost importance that we understand when we celebrate communion, that we truly do celebrate and rejoice in the fact that Jesus died. We are not celebrating the reason that he died, which is our sin. Okay, there's a big difference. Would you agree? He, he went to the cross because of my sin. I have to say it that way, and I have to understand it that way. And maybe it's, it might be a good exercise to say, my sin. Can we do that together? My sin. Not just the sin of the world, yes, the sin of the world, but my sin is why he died. I don't celebrate my sin, but I know that my sin was keeping me from God. And it was needed that God would provide a savior and a sacrifice that would forgive me, that would cause my cleansing, that would cause me to be transformed, that would change me fundamentally. I needed that. So I don't celebrate the reason for the cross, but I do celebrate the result of the cross. The result of the cross is life. I came to give you life, to give it to you abundantly. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, will never be separated from God again. In, in my lifetime, I know that there will be moments that I'll feel separated. I'll feel a disconnect, right? Because of sin, because of failure, because of guilt, because of lack of prayer. I'll, I'll feel those things. But the promise of Scripture is that I will not have those things. I will always be in fellowship with the Lord because of what Jesus did for me, and I will have the promise of eternal life. Now, when we come to the table, what we call the table, our church and our tradition is an open table. Amen? That means that everyone who proclaims Jesus as Savior is welcome. You, when you take the bread, you are proclaiming that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's the Savior of the world and that he's your Savior, that he died for your sins, that you've spoken that truth in your own heart, that he died for my sins. 
and I am repenting of my sins, okay? 1 Corinthians 11 continues on from proclaiming or, or celebrating the Lord's death. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does that mean to examine yourself? Open table, you're welcome, but please examine yourself. Psalms tells us that if I had cherished sin in my heart, God would not listen to my prayer. Coming to the table in a worthy manner simply means that I am coming with an open heart to God, not cherishing sin. And the beauty of it is, is, is this. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. If you have the bread in your hand, okay, um, that means that you're proclaiming Jesus as your Savior. Simply pray a simple prayer, okay? Lord, is there any sin in my life that I have not repented of? Is there any sin in my life that I've cherished? That's it. Just pray that prayer. Just ask God to reveal it to you. If he reveals something to you, I believe he is a personal God that will tell you what's going on. If you're hope, open to it, if you're humble, if you're ready and receptive, he'll tell you. You pray that prayer. If something comes into your, your head, your heart, your mind, whatever, the beauty of it is this. God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. First John says, if you confess, he is faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Amen? Immediately, you have dealt with the reason for the cross, and you're ready to celebrate the result of the cross right now. Examine your heart. Let's spend a few moments in prayer. Lord, I, I'm praying for every person here, at home, wherever they may be. Lord, let, let their prayer be their prayer, not, not my prayer. Lord, I, I, I'm just coming to you alongside each and every one, asking that you would reveal sin, unrepentant sin, sin that we've harbored, sin that we've we have uh, cherished sin that we've been rebellious not to, to give up, Lord, anything like that. Bring it to mind. Make it obvious. Let there be no doubt. Not for guilt's sake, but for the sake of cleansing, purity, righteousness, holiness, forgiveness joy, relationship, transformation. We give you praise, God. Let there be a spirit in each and every heart willing to say, I'm sorry. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for paying the price for that sin. I accept it. I receive it. I'm changed by it. And I give you praise. And Lord, now we celebrate. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the life that it gives. And thank you that you are willing to do all that for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. If you would, prepare your cup.
After the meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. I can never get past that. The Jewish people had many covenants with God. God had made several covenants with them over the course of their life, their history. Covenant with Adam, covenant with Moses and Sinai, covenant with Abraham, covenant uh, with David. He made covenants, promises. He was faithful to those promises. He said he would never break his side of that promise. Jesus says that there's another covenant. This is the new covenant, and this is the one that is once and for all. It's a blood covenant. One-sided. God does it, promises it, by his own blood. All we do is step into that covenant, into that relationship, by faith. He will fulfill his promises. That's why we celebrate. It's the blood of the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink ye all of it. Let's just bow our hearts again. We're going to worship here as we close. And uh, I pray that it is truly just an absolute celebration. Amen. The result of the cross is the greatest joy that the human being can ever experience when you know it. So let's just bow our hearts before the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for making it possible for us to step into that new life. Thank you for awakening our hearts to it. Thank you for sharing with us all your truths, revealing your truths, and giving us your Holy Spirit that we can understand and grasp them. Thank you for the grace to, to live this Christian life, Lord. Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we fail. But you never give up on us. And Lord, we pray for the strength to never give up on you. That when we walk out of this place, we would be fearless, and we would be joyful, and we would be bold for your name's sake, for your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.